We believe and have always believed in this country that man was created in the image of God, that he was given talents and responsibilities and was instructed to use them to make this world a better place in which to live. And you see, this is the really great thing of America. It's time to discover what binds us together, and finding it has the power to transform our world. That's what I believe. How about you? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Believe. I'm Doug DeVos, and I'm thrilled to have the uh, opportunity today to talk with a good friend of mine, Arthur Brooks. And Arthur is just a, a wonderful friend, but a, a very insightful person when we think about this idea of the path to a good life. How do we live a good life? How do we find our way there? And that's the topic we want to explore today with Arthur, because we all want to find a, our way to a better place. We all want to find a way to a, a, a place of purpose and a place of meaning. And, and Arthur has just a, a, a spectacular uh, perspective on this, uh, knowledge on this, and really looking forward to sharing it about. Arthur's done so many things. We'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, a lot. The, the the title I like is, is the, the chief happiness correspondent uh, that really plays with the Atlantic. So Arthur Brooks, welcome. So good to see you, my friend. Nice to see you too. I you know I haven't seen you in person in a little bit in a little while, but it's uh, now I'm seeing you on the virtual screen. I hope you've been happy and healthy. I've been happy and healthy, doing the best I can, and trust you're doing the same. Oh, yeah. No, life is good. I got one of my kids is getting married this summer. I got one who's a scout sniper in the Marine Corps and one who's getting A's in college. So for once, nobody's in crisis. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's yeah. good. But but, but the, how's the wedding planning going? It's it's going just fine. They seemed I think that their I think that their engagement is going to survive the wedding planning, which is a very good sign for a successful marriage. <laughs> you can make it through that. You can make it through anything, can't you? Exactly right. And I'm, and and the deal is that I'm I, I I must be a grandfather within the next two years. That's my that's the deal. Of course, they might not live up to their end of the bargain, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, there's there's just so much you could do to be helpful in that regard. I know. I know exactly right. I mean, they're, they said, fine, if you want to live with us and take care of the children. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Arthur, uh, let, let's dive in here a little bit. You know, there's a it's a, a an interesting world right now. There's a lot of tough things going on. And and this idea of happiness is something that seems to be at an all-time low. Uh, and it seems to be more than just the pandemic experience. It seems to be a, a few other things piling on. And, the, you know, the recent surveys would say that, you know, certainly from an American perspective, only you know, 14% would say that they're very happy. There's a, you know, that's a low number, the lowest I think they measured in, you know, in five decades. So, so help us understand this issue of happiness uh, and and the 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 depth of it a little bit. Just kind of frame that out. Then we'll dive into a little bit more of uh, of your story. Yeah. So now you you're you're referring to the general social survey data from the University of Chicago, I think, and and that's a survey that's all going back to 1972 has been asking people to, to self rate their happiness. How happy would you say, all things considered, in your life? And there's three there's three categories: very happy, somewhat happy, and not too happy. And and generally speaking, um, most people, about 33 percent of the population, traditionally would say they're very happy about their lives. And and now it's down below 20 percent for the very first time. Now, some of that is COVID, but a lot of that is a secular downward trend. And we've been seeing the downward trend little by little by little, all the way back to the late 1980s. This is a problem. Now, the first thing that you know your listeners are going to be asking is, can we really rely on that? Does that really tell us how happy people are or do they lie? 
And the truth is that when you ask people in big surveys anonymously, how happy would you say you are? They, they don't lie. I mean, you can't ask that in front of somebody's spouse because then they will lie. But if you ask people that <laughs> an anonymously and in big samples, you're going to get a pretty accurate representation. But people do know how happy they are. So this is the big question. Why would this be happening? Some of it, as I mentioned before, as we talked about, is because of COVID. But most of it is actually this downward trend in American happiness and people who say they're happy about their lives. That's what I study. Now, people look all the time at kind of the wrong things with happiness. They'll look at the international surveys, which is the happiest country. And they always find, for example, when you compare people with respect to their happiness on averages across countries that Denmark and Sweden and Norway and Iceland and Finland, that these are the happiest countries. You can't trust those things at all because international comparisons are comparing people who answer the question in different ways. And so, you know, your your grandparents who came from Denmark and my I mean, from from Holland and my, my grandparents yeah. who came from Denmark, they're, they're always saying that they're happy because people who stay in countries um, although your grandparents, I know, were, were actually immigrants, as were mine. But the people who do stay in those countries, they tend to answer it in terms of contentment. We in America answer that in terms of adventure and opportunity because we're a very immigrant-focused, very entrepreneurial-based society. When people answer it in East Asia, they're largely talking about peace in their families, which is sort of the highest value. You can't compare Danes and Americans and Japanese and Indians and South Americans. In Russia, it's bad luck to say that you're not happy or that you are happy, I should say. And so everybody <laughs> says that they're not, and it looks like everybody's morbidly depressed. So forget all of those comparisons, but we can compare ourselves against ourselves over time. And that's the really, really worrying thing. So that's what I study. Why And why, why do people answer the way that they do? Why are people answering it, answering it a different way? What are the big societal trends that are driving it? And most importantly, I know, I think I know the answer. What can we actually do to turn it around? Well, let's spend a little let's spend a little time with that. But first, let's back up and talk about a little bit of your journey, so our listeners will all kind of understand a, a bit of of who Arthur Brooks is. And so, so uh, we go back a long way to uh, Grand Rapids <laughs> Grand Rapids Christian High School when you were here, and <laughs> and uh, and then you know your your uh, you know adventures as a professional musician, um, and, and then to uh, to a, a think tank. And now into, you know, a new adventure. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, that progression, because that's an interesting background. And you must have learned a lot about being happy or not being happy. And, and so so start why don't you with start with the uh, you know, start as a as a professional musician. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, so the listeners understand what we're talking about. You, you and I coincided by for one year in high school. Yes. You and I are almost exactly the same age, but I spent my sophomore year at the high school that you went to, which is Grand Rapids yeah. Christian, because my father was teaching at Calvin College at, Calvin at the College, time sure. for, for yeah. just, just one year on a trade. And then I went back to where I grew up in Seattle. Well, I graduated from high school. I went to college for a year, which didn't work out. And I became a professional musician, which was my dream, a classical musician. I don't want people to think that I was, you know, running around like some crazy guitar player, or a drummer or something. Nothing's anything wrong with that. I played with symphony orchestras and in chamber music. And I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony, which is actually where I got married. I married my, my wife who's Spanish. 
um, in Barcelona. Um, at the same time, I started realizing in my late 20s that I needed to do some studying. I thought that might be a good thing to do. So I went back to college actually by correspondence and got my correspondence school degree when I was uh, 30 years old and then went to graduate school because I was so interested in, in what I had been learning. And I became a social scientist. Uh, I, I specialized in behavior. I looked at I looked at why people give money to charity, why people things are people think things are beautiful. And ultimately, I wound up um, looking at human happiness. I taught at Syracuse for about 10 years, Syracuse University. And then I left to run a think tank, a free enterprise oriented think tank. And that's when you and I connected, reconnected. Absolutely. You and I reconnected because, you know, you were running Amway at the time and I was running the American Enterprise Institute. And what synchronicity could this have? It could have been better. And I was running a think tank <laughs> of promoting the values of Amway and which Amway right. was doing every day in the markets and lifting people which, up. And which, giving we, them, which we... Which we appreciated, by the way. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to study it, but you also have to do it. So, you know, we were sort of vertically integrated from ideas to action to prosperity for families. And then I left um, after the think tank experience for about 11 years. And for the last three years, I've been a professor at Harvard University at the, the Harvard Kennedy School, the Harvard Business School. And I teach classes in happiness. I write about happiness as a social scientist. I don't, it's not self-improvement. It's really the science and how you can use it. And so I write every week in the Atlantic. I write books about the subject. I have a podcast. Uh, I'm working on a television show, all kinds of fun stuff. And as importantly as anything else, I'm actually doing happiness classes inside companies so that corporate leaders can be happier people and their managers can actually be teaching happiness to their workforces so they'll be more productive and lifting each other up. So that's a big part of what I'm doing these days. Well, that's, that's spectacular. I, I love, and I'm sure our, our listeners would love that history because this is not something you've just stumbled on. This is something you've lived and you've studied and, and you've developed and you've participated. And one thing maybe to dive deeper in your transition, you've just found a time, you're incredibly successful at the American Enterprise Institute, a lot of great things going on. And you just said, time for change. Yeah. Been here, yeah. been here long enough time for a change. Talk about that a little bit. Help our, under, our listeners understand, because so many of us, when we've been doing something, especially when we're successful, the last thing we want to do is make a change. Yeah, how, I know. How, and, how did you how did you <laughs> approach that, deal with that, and, and, and help us understand uh, how, how we can appreciate that there's more to life? Yeah, no. And, and by the way, you could, you could answer the same question, because you did the same thing on nearly the same time frame. I mean, you exactly. and I have these it's sort of a parallelism to it. I mean, you ran the company and volunteer I mean, one of the most successful companies in the world. They got more successful when you were running it. And you stepped down on purpose to lead success to the next person, to, to have the next generation of leadership in the company take over and to go from strength to strength. As Psalm 84 likes to remind us should be our goal. One of the things that you learn when you study leadership, when you actually look at leadership, which is technically what I'm a professor of at Harvard, I'm a professor of public leadership, is that, that the cadence of, of chief executive jobs tends to be most successful at about 10 years. 10 years is a really good mark. Now, it should be more than five because you can't get a vision going in less than five years most of the time. But more than 10, you don't usually get more than one vision. And so 10 years, nine years, 13 years, whatever it happens to be, but around there tends to be kind of the sweet spot for a lot of CEOs. And I saw it in myself. After 10 years, I was hitting the zone. And as I was getting close to 10, I noticed what I had been seeing in my studies as, a, as an academic in the years gone by, that, that it was going to be better for the organization 
if I handed it over to somebody else who had different strengths than me. And so I worked with a board and I did that. It's hard to step away. I'm not going to lie, Doug. I'm sure it was for you too. I mean, you were having a good old time. It was a party at Amway. It was a party at the American Enterprise Institute. But, But the key thing is you have to have the humility to do so. Now, it's very helpful. I'm a Christian. And this is the most important single part about my life for everybody to know that my life is based on my Christian faith. And my Christian faith has to be based on my humility and an understanding that I'm not the savior of anything. I might be a good CEO. I might bring some certain gifts. But the truth of the matter is I need to bring everything to God and bring it and lift it up in prayer. And I asked about this. And this is what I recommend that everybody do with their job, with their life not just problems, but challenges and opportunities and exciting adventures, bring it. If you have religion, if you're a religious person, bring it to your religious life and ask for guidance. And that's what I did. And that was the ultimately the the, the best part about my personal transition was that how it it lived up to my research, but more importantly, it, it, it improved my faith. Yeah. Wow. That, that's that's a great story. And again, you draw on the foundational aspects of your life that, that you go to and you and, and you, you really think about what you're experiencing. Uh, so yeah. how 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 have you now applied that? Talk a little bit about how you're applying that now at Harvard and, and the things you're doing uh, that you're doing now. So, you know, are, are, you know, presumably you're creating that you're going from strength to strength, uh, as your book says, and you're getting to that next uh, vision or sweet spot. Yeah. So that's what actually I wanted to do next was to create more value, lift people up and bring them together. What I figured out was when I stepped down as a CEO, the question was, okay, what am I supposed to do next? And I really felt very strongly that the answer to that question was to lift people up and bring them together in bonds of love and happiness using my ideas. That's what I have a whole lot of. I I mean, I, I, I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm not going to dig ditches faster than somebody else. I mean, there's just, and I'm certainly not going to shoot jump shots. And there's a whole lot of things I'm not going to be able to do very well. What I'm really good at is coming up with ideas and explaining them to other people. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it turns out that that's a real job out there, especially in a world that's uh, that's propelled by ideas. And I, it's propelled by good and bad ideas, by the way. Yeah, so when right. I went to Harvard and I started at a business school, they, they asked me, so what do you want to teach? Which is the first question they always ask a brand new professor. And I said, I think you need a class on human happiness. I think you need a class on the science of happiness. That's 25% neuroscience. That's 50% social science, mostly social psychology and behavioral economics, and 25% philosophy and theology. That's what I think you need. And I say, the reason is that I've been looking at data on business school graduates. And one of the things that I notice is that 10 or 15 years after these very elite MBA students finish their degrees, they all have their dreams come true. The problem is they have the wrong dreams. <laughs> you know, if, if you, if, and by the way, there's nothing weird about this. There's nothing wrong with Harvard Business School students. I mean, everybody wants to make money, to be prosperous, to, to be admired. Everybody wants to have uh, some influence over other people, to have an impact. And this is how, how human beings are wired, and it's a good and beautiful thing. The problem is that it's not as satisfying as people are going to think. And so what they wind up doing a lot, not everybody, but what a lot of them wind up doing is, is thinking they're going to be satisfied when circumstances smile on them. And what they don't understand is that you don't need circumstances. You need habits. You don't need hacks. You need habits in your life that make good happiness hygiene. Basically, what it amounts to is this, Doug. You know, if I meet somebody who's really struggling when they get older with their, with their money, 
I'll say, well, you should have had a 401k plan. You know, somebody who made a lot of money and then winds up broke. I mean, you need a 401k plan. Everybody knows this, right? <clears throat> so what, we, what people need is also a happiness 401k plan. And everybody, whether they're rich or they're poor, they need the same happiness 401k plan. Look, the investment strategy is very different in money between people who are very lucky and the people who aren't. But the strategy is the same for all human beings when it comes to our hearts. And so what I work on that right now is the happiness 401k plan that everybody, my students and, and everybody else and the companies that I go teach to, I say, look, they're telling you to put money in your 401k plan. I'm going to tell you where to put your heart so that you can actually get happier as the decades go by. You can be ready for the change that, that inevitably will be coming your way. And you can be happier at 75 than you were at 25. So that's basically the guarantee and what I teach and what I write about and what I talk about. Fascinating, you know this idea that you know, that the, there's science behind things because sometimes we we tend to just think that you know I just want to be happy and I'm going to see someone and I'm going to fall in love and I'm going to I'm going to you know do this thing and I'm just, it's just going to be great for me because I have this image of us or this this thought about it or this dream um, and, and then once you get there you realize it it, it kind of translates back to some principles and work and, and, and the science behind it that you talk about. So help us, help us understand, you know, give us a couple examples, give us some of the, the, the these practical steps that you can turn the science that you study when you teach, uh, you know, when you teach these classes, when you talk about these things at, at, at universities, at corporations, that, that, people can take and apply. So for our audience, what are some of the things that they can say, okay, I'm getting my mind around what Arthur's talking about here, but how do I now start to take it and maybe do a few things with it? Yeah, sure. So to begin with, it's important that, that people understand what happiness is. Now, everybody kind of thinks they know what happiness is, but then they, then they think clearly about it. Like, actually, I don't. Is it some, it's a feeling, and I know when I have it. And I know when I don't, <laughs> but that's really not true. Happiness is not a feeling any more than your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. That's evidence of the Thanksgiving dinner. And your happy feelings are evidence of your happiness. Happiness is basically, you know, staying on the metaphor of food. All of food has what we call macronutrients. So all of food is made up of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. All food. So your whole diet. And if you want to get healthier, you got to make sure that you have all three macronutrients in balance and abundance and not too much of one and not too little of another. The big problem that we have in the American diet is too much carbohydrate and not enough protein, for example. And so I'm rebalancing people's diets all the time because they ask me for because I'm, you know, like you, I'm kind of conscious of what I put in my body because I I want to stay around for a little while, for example. That's right. Well, happiness is like food. It has three macronutrients that you need in both balance and abundance. You need three things. They are enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Those are the three macronutrients of happiness. Now, how do I know this? Because when I look at happy and unhappy people, these things are out of balance or they're missing. Now, enjoyment is not the same thing as pleasure. If only it were as easy as pleasure, you could get it from a gin bottle. You could get it from you know, all kinds of sources, but that's not true. Enjoyment is, is pleasure plus elevation. So you know, your Thanksgiving dinner gives you pleasure because it fills you up and it tastes good. But the enjoyment actually comes from your Thanksgiving dinner when you're eating it with the people that you love and you're thinking about it and you can make a memory. That's when it actually becomes part of happiness. Now, we're always telling our kids, 
It's a beautiful day. Don't sit in front of the computer. Go outside. What we're telling them is don't, don't be satisfied with pleasure. Get enjoyment by getting more elevation, actually using your brain. Don't look at TV mindlessly. Read a book. Why? Because a little bit of easy TV gives you pleasure. A really good book gives you enjoyment. That's the idea. The second is satisfaction. Now, satisfaction is a joy that you get from a job well done. The joy, the happiness that you actually get is a reward for an accomplishment that you really earned. So, you know, that, that, that A, you get in school or the promotion you get at work or the raise or somebody says, you know, thank you and admires you or I love you. I mean, these things actually are a form of satisfaction. The problem with satisfaction is that you can't keep it. It tends to be very temporary. That's the, and the fact that we don't ever realize that is why we run and run and run and run. That's called the hedonic treadmill, where you want the reward and you think you're going to keep it, but you don't. So you keep running and running and running. And that's how people get into cycles of addiction. They want to be satisfied finally by how much they drink, by how much they eat, by how much they gamble, by how much they work. Workaholism is all about this treadmill. Finally, I'll be satisfied with my performance. Finally, I'll have worked enough. No, no you won't. You're addicted. That's the satisfaction problem, and there are ways to solve it. Then finally, there's the meaning, meaning and purpose in life. And this is the hardest one because meaning and purpose actually requires suffering and sadness. My students don't want to hear this sometimes, but I have to help them understand that you should never, never be trying to avoid suffering. Now, too much is too much, and people can suffer from depression and anxiety, and those are medical conditions, to be sure. But ordinary suffering is something that you need to find meaning and purpose in your life. The loss, the fear that actually comes from ordinary life can be the source of your strength as you see it as an opportunity. So these are the three things that we talk about. When I meet somebody who's really unhappy, I'm looking for an insufficiency in enjoyment or satisfaction or purpose. And once I see that, then I can actually get into more of the science. Now, the practical question that you're asking is, so how do you do it? What are the actual investments in the happiness 401k plan? And, and again, everybody's a little bit different. And part of the reason that we're different is because 50% of our baseline happiness is genetic. You know, this is actually, if some people are naturally happy, some people are naturally gloomy, as it turns out, just as some people eat the same food and some people get fat and some people don't. <clears throat> That's because we have different metabolisms. And then 50% is genetic, 25% is from circumstances, which everybody has different circumstances, but 25% of your happiness is pure habits. Now, we don't have to leave those habits up to chance. And good news, those habits control 25% of your happiness directly. They can change your circumstances for the better, and they can make you control your, your genetics. So you really got to get these habits right. This is the happiness 401k plan. Now, I can look in the, in the academic scientific literature, which is the stuff I read all day, and there's a thousand different habits. You know, should you do weight training or cardio? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. But that stuff is boring. That stuff is trivial. There's four habits, the big four. These are the investments you need to put your time and, and, and energy into every single day, every single day without lapsing. Four are your faith, your family, your friendships, and your work. Now that sounds an awful lot like the pillars of 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 of, of Amway. I realize that are in the you know the worldwide <laughs> headquarters, but the and this is all based on the scientific literature. This is not wishful thinking. This is not self improvement. This is based on the fact. And and by the way, when I say faith, I don't necessarily mean my faith and my Christian faith. That's not necessarily the way. What I'm saying is you need a bigger a bigger perspective on life than just me 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 me. 
you know, because life is so trivial and boring when it's my car, my job, my commute, my friends, my kids. I mean, we're compulsively thinking about this, but we need peace and perspective and you need to zoom out. Now, maybe you're walking in nature. Maybe you're reading the Stoics. Maybe you're going to church. Maybe you have a meditation practice. You need something that's transcendental. And that's, that's habit one. Habit two is your family life. Now, a lot of people are neglecting this and it's happening more and more. The family ties are the ties that bind and don't break and you didn't choose. And God knows in many cases, we wouldn't choose them. You choose your friends, not your family. A lot of people listening to us had a tough Thanksgiving um, because Aunt Marge wouldn't stop talking about politics. I get it. But Aunt Marge will take your 2 a.m. phone call when you're in crisis. And most of your friends are like, who is this? <laughs> this is really important. These ties, these family ties, if you can avoid a rupture, especially because of something stupid like politics, you must do that work. To, to stop talking to a family member because of politics is stepping over $100 bills to get to nickels. It's bad, bad, bad strategy. The third thing is, is friendships. Now, when I'm talking about friendships, I mean real friends, not deal friends. And everybody listening to us knows the difference. Real beats deal all day long. Real friendships are based on our, you know, the useless things that we both love. Uh, you know, this is a really important thing that we talk about as opposed to I help you, you help me. Deal friendships are fine. There's nothing wrong with deal friendships, but we need real friendships. By the way, for everybody who's listening to us who's married, your spouse must be a real friend. That's the basis of a lifelong marriage. That's the basis of happiness in marriage is real friendships. Of course, not deal friendships, but a lot of spouses aren't even any kind of friends, quite frankly. They don't even think of themselves as such. You got to fix that. And finally, work. And work has to have only two characteristics. I don't care if you're the president of Amway, the professor at Harvard, the politician, the bricklayer, the electrician, or the plumber. I don't care. You have to have two characteristics. One is that you have to earn your success. That comes from accomplishment and hard work and merit and has to be recognized and rewarded. You will love your job if you earn your success. The second is you need to serve other people. You need to feel like you're serving others, that somebody needs you with your work. If you don't feel those things, you're going to hate your job. If you're, if you're a boss and your employees don't feel those things, your employees are going to quit because they're going to hate their jobs as well. So that's it. I mean, Doug, it's not that hard to remember. Uh, faith, family, friends, and work that serves. And if we do that, and we got to put a, a deposit in each one of those accounts every single day. And if we do, boom, that thing is going to grow and our happiness is going to thrive. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, so well uh, you know, uh, developed so well articulated, but isn't it sometimes counterintuitive? Sometimes, if you're looking at these things for for faith, some of the mo the most damaging things that have happened to people are an experience they had in the faith community, or the rejection they felt, or 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 that bad discussion at a at, at a time in family. So, if it doesn't it feel counterintuitive to some people, and and what's the what's the step they have to take up? You know, to ha what should they believe about this this possibility of, of, of happiness, of fulfillment, uh, uh, the, you know, getting you know, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose, and and taking the risk with those with those areas in their life? Uh, how to, how to take those steps? Yeah, it's really hard. You know, Overcome there that. are people listening to us who've had very bad experiences in their in their faith community, yeah. really bad experiences, and in, in their families. And the reason that those things are so traumatic is because you care about them so much. 
you know, if you're brought up in the church and you care about it and somebody violates your, your, violates your, uh, your trust, um, which has happened look, I'm a Catholic and I don't have to tell you all the bad things that have happened in the Catholic church. And now, now we're you know reading all these exposés about the Southern Baptists and well, why? Because people are really, really imperfect. Lots of leaders are imperfect and they violate trust and hurt people. Nobody would care if they didn't care about religion. It's like, ah, I went to a church. I didn't care. And the, the guy was a jerk and I still don't care. You know, but the truth is, these are really important things. And, and when, when a, a parent betrays trust or whatever it happens to be, that's really, really damaging. The things that can raise your happiness the most, they can also lower, they can also raise your unhappiness the most. Key thing to remember is that happiness and unhappiness actually work in different parts of the brain. They're not opposites from each other. Unhappiness is not the absence of happiness at all. But the things that are your most emotionally invested in, because these are your happiness sources, they can be your great unhappiness sources as well. So when people have had a terrible damaging experience with faith or with family, the key thing is not to write that off. The key thing is to find if you can heal it, heal it, or to find some other avenue to get that. You know, you don't have to go to the same church, for example. You can actually find people who are more virtuous, for example, if you had a, 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 a romantic relationship with somebody that was really damaging, it was really toxic and it really hurt you a lot, don't write off romance. Romance is one of the great happiness sources in life. You know, you need to be an entrepreneur with your life. And one of the things that entrepreneurs all know is that you got to take risks, you got to fail, you got to try again is what it comes to. But at the end of the day, these still are your, your happiness sources. They just might not be the original ones. Right, right. You, you know, that the idea of taking risks, of accepting failure, you, you know, in, in the Amway business, the most powerful stories are when people failed. You know, my, my, my dad and Jay Van Andel, you know, the, the, probably the most powerful story they talk about is their idea of sailing to South America when they didn't know how to sail and how they found their way, you know, got lost going down the East Coast of the United States and finally the boat sank. So the, the whole idea of their story was it was a failure, the boat sank, but they didn't let the boat sinking stop them from their trip. They, it, they turned the story around and, and so many people in, in life some of the most powerful stories that they have are when they failed. They tried something and failed. So how does how does risk tell, talk a little bit more about how risk taking and, and 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 the freedom to to fail at something shouldn't maybe shouldn't stop us from taking the next risk. People are are deeply afraid, not just of failure, but a lot of their people are motivated by a lot of their fears. Some people are afraid of death. Some people are afraid of being forgotten. Some people are afraid of rejection. A lot of my students who are some of the most high achieving, intelligent people I've ever met really are afraid of academic and, and professional failure. Fear is part of life. But the key thing to keep in mind is that fear is the opposite of love. People often think that love and hatred are opposites, but they aren't. You know, in the Bible, the St. John the Apostle says that that perfect love drives out fear, but that's the same thing that Lao Tzu, the the, the you know the, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, an ancient Confucian of, of wisdom in China, said this exactly the same thing. And, and we, we know from modern neuroscience that that the the master emotion is fear on the negative side, and the master positive emotion is love. They really are opposites, neurological opposites wow. from each other. And the important thing to keep in mind about that is that you can't be held back by, by fear, but, and, but it's not enough to say that. 
You got to put good news around it too. There's a way to conquer your fear and it's more love. You know, when my students come to me and they ask for my advice and they say, I'm a really, really afraid of failure. I say, you need more love in your life. When they come to me and they say, I don't have enough love in my life. I say, let's examine your fear. Because you always go to the opposite and you would try to treat, you don't treat the problem at hand. You go to the opposite problem and treat that in the opposite way. This is one of the best techniques for solving problems in our lives. And so this is the key thing for us to keep in mind. You need more love. Love actually brings you confidence. Love neutralizes fear in your life. Now, one other thing to keep in mind, you know, a lot of people that listen to us really admire entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial families like the DeVos family, sort of the story of American entrepreneurial success. Very inspirational, you know, what it was. Um, but all of us are entrepreneurs because it turns out that business is not even the most interesting kind of entrepreneurship. The most interesting kind of entrepreneurship is the startup of your life. Everybody who's listening to us is, a, is the CEO of a startup endeavor called the Enterprise of You, Inc. Now, you got to remember what all entrepreneurs have in common. What they're trying to do is to, to create explosive rewards. They're trying to use a kind of you know, explosive amount of capital that doesn't exist. They have dreams of things that didn't exist in the past, and they have faith in resources they don't currently have in hand. I didn't say anything about money. That doesn't have anything to do with money. The most important currency for us as startup entrepreneurs of our lives is love. And the way that you can do this is by giving your heart away and taking a big risk. That is your entrepreneurship. You know, it's like I talk to young people today and I say, you want to be an entrepreneur? Get married. That's an incredibly <laughs> entrepreneurial thing to do. You might start a business too, but getting married is a much bigger deal for happiness and, and life success than starting a business, any business, even if it's a bazillion dollar business, getting married is a much bigger deal than that. But to do it, you got to give your heart away and you might get hurt. Now, one thing to keep in mind, Doug, the research shows that the average startup business entrepreneur has 3.8 failures before their first success on average. I mean, nobody has 0.8 failures, but you get my point. <laughs> about four failures before success. Think about that in terms of your love life. You know, it's pretty normal to have your heart broken a bunch of times. And from that, you learn, from that, you become resilient. That's called stress inoculation. It's an exposure therapy to something that's really, really hard. You got to try again. You have to learn from it. You actually have to be strong as a result of it. And we as parents need to help our kids be strong when their hearts are broken as well and to say, you know, that's the way it works sometimes. And there will be somebody who will love you for who you are as a person. And I know it feels like you're going to be hurting forever, but you're not. In the same way that if your business failed and or your boat sank, there's something else that you can actually do. Spectacular. This idea of resilience. Uh, uh, you know, we, we talk about grit. You, you, you talk about uh, – we, we were with a, another friend who was saying we were – we were discussing the the topic of anxiety in in the U.S. and young people, uh, and he was raising the the possibilities because it's people have had it too good. You know, they, they've had great parents that's looked after them. They've, they've taken care of them. They've had lots of opportunity, so they almost have to create something to give them you know, anxiety in their life. I don't know how that if that's accurate or not, but it, it this idea of being strong enough to overcome something seems to seems to be very powerful. For sure. No, no, we, we're, we're built as human beings to overcome adversity. This is how we're wired. And if our parents take away all the adversity, it can be really, really problematic. 
Now, some people who are listening to us, they grew up poor and some people who are listening to us grew up rich, but we all need challenges in our lives. And if we are fully alive, we will have those challenges. The key thing is for us not to shy away from them. The big problem is when we're protected from challenges and then we protect ourselves from those challenges, from those sacrifices, even from that suffering. The question is not, how can I make the suffering go away? The question should be, what am I learning from it? You know, the interesting thing that the exercise that I give my students is we do, I have them have a failure and suffering journal. And, and I know it sounds really terrible and morbid, but here's how it works, Doug. They, <laughs> I, they, I love it. I love it. Because inevitably bad things happen to us. Somebody's mean to us or we get a rejection or, you know, we don't get the job that we apply for or, you know, something bad happens. Every time something bad happens, it really bothers you. Take out your journal and write it down and leave two spaces below it. Okay. Now, one month from now, set a timer on your phone that gives you an alarm. Go back. And under that, you need to write, what did I learn from that thing that happened a month ago? And then six months after the problem, you go back and you say, what opportunity came as a result of this challenge? What opportunity came that I didn't see at the time? Now, when you do this, you get incredible perspective and you get your wire in your own resiliency by not just kind of hoping and leaving it up to chance you're actually gonna install it in the prefrontal cortex of your brain um, by, by actually, this is called metacognition. If you write things down, if you journal things, you take them to prayer, what you'll be doing is you'll be making the metacognitive and the big meaty human parts of the brain. Also, next time you write something down, you're gonna, you're gonna inevitably see the last thing and say, yep, bad thing just happened to me. And every time it happens, I learn something and it's an opportunity. I don't want the bad thing to happen, but there's some good that comes from it every single time. And that makes you strong. Yeah. yeah, Fascinating to be able to take that and to turn it around in the right ways. Hey, Arthur, talk a little bit. I know we've had uh, some fun discussions in the past. You have a, a very, very strong faith. Your, your Christian faith is very strong and personal for you. And you've talked about that. You've also studied and you've also engaged with a lot of people from different faiths who who have shared wisdom with you. Talk, talk about that a little bit. In, in particular, you've you spent time in, in the Eastern religions and and uh, and with the Dalai Lama. Can you fill us in or, or help us uh, share share some of the things that you've learned from the some of the people that you've met and the the, the work that you've done there? Yeah. I mean, some of the most important lessons that I've learned about my own Christian faith has been from non-Christians, um, from wow. secular humanists, from atheists, from Buddhists, from Hindus, from our Muslim brothers. I mean, it's incredible how much I've learned because they give me perspectives that I don't have. And they have teachings and scriptures that are not available to us, but that hold incredible truths. Now, some Christians who are very, very serious about their faith, they might be saying, they might be pounding the desk right now saying, no, why is he saying something like this? But I want, I want us to remember a couple of things. There's no Christian out there who doesn't love the words of St. Augustine. I mean, from his famous confessions, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Those are the words of the great St. Augustine for both Protestants and Catholics. It's, it's very, very important writing. Well, St. Augustine actually was a Platonist. His main source of ideas came from scripture and Plato. Plato was a pagan by Christian standards. He was pre-Christian. He was somebody who didn't even know that there was a Christian faith. Now, this is important to understand, therefore, that one of the great saints, one of the great sages 
one of the great teachers of the Christian religion that made it possible for future generations to share the faith and to, and to, to love God more, he was being heavily influenced by somebody that wasn't a Christian at all. And we can do the same. We can learn from the Dalai Lama. And I've been working closely with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, for the past 10 years. Uh, you know, we've written together. I've interviewed him in public many times. He's a beloved teacher and a beloved friend. And, and he's often said to me that what he wants for me is to be a better Christian. It's a wonderful thing because he wants me to be on my, my own particular path. I also have studied with teachers in Southern India who have taught me a great deal or, 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 or Muslim imams that I've seen. And I've had so many Jewish rabbis that have helped me along my way. And of course, people without faith, um, uh, real atheists who have helped me understand what, what my neuroscience beliefs can and should be and helped me along my path of happiness and how I can be a better, more ethical person. Basically, it comes down to this. But Mother Teresa, you know, the great Catholic nun who helped the poor in Calcutta for so many years was asked, you know, why are you hanging out with all these Hindu gurus? And she said, you don't understand. I love all faiths, but I'm in love with the Christian faith. And that's how I feel too. Wow. That, that, that is a, a great perspective of, of how we want to expand our thinking and expand the inputs that, that we get in life. And that's what I think these you know, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, right, is, is to have an opportunities for people to explore their own beliefs and, and to receive some information and, and to receive a perspective that that may uh, exactly align, maybe a little aligned or maybe even, you know, from a different perspective. But it will challenge all of us to, to, to be a little better and, and find our own path forward. Yeah, Arthur, let, let me go back a, a little more practically again, and, and I'm going to go back to the habits that you talked about. And uh, uh, you've, you've referenced this a, a little bit, but I ask you to, to go back into the, the dignity associated with work, because you talk about it as one of the four, right? Faith, family, friendships, and then work. And, and there's a lot of of activity in the world today where, where people are having a hard time, workforce participation is low. But beyond just work getting a job, this idea of developing this hab these habits, that's work too. Hel help us understand how you look at what we get up every day to do. Maybe we don't go to a job, but we got to get up every day to do something. Help us understand how we should think about things when we get up every day. Yeah. You know, what, what we're wired to do as people, it's very clear in almost all of the evolutionary biology literature. People are created, are created, are, I believe they're created, but people are born certainly to create value. We're made to create value. You know, as Christian people, you know, we, ought, we believe that we're made in the image of God and God is creative and God creates. And since we're made like God, we're made to be creative and to create things too. You know, it's not like creating the oceans and the earth. I mean, I'm not going to flatter myself. I'm not you know, doing anything <laughs> along those lines, but I've got my own little version of that. But even if you don't believe those things, even if you're not a religious person, it's very clear that people are happier when they are creative and, and everybody is creative in their own way, that they're creating value with their lives and in the lives of other people. People just love this. It's a true source of bliss and, and enduring satisfaction. You don't get your satisfaction from meeting your wants. You create, you, you get enduring satisfaction by meeting the wants of others, because that means you're doing something valuable, which is such a beautiful thing. Now, sometimes it's paid and sometimes it's not. 
Maybe it's going out to the market. Maybe it's being a CEO. Maybe it's staying home and, and taking care of your children. Maybe it's doing volunteer work. Maybe it's doing work that people actually never see. All of these things are generative, but that's what we have to be thinking about. What can I do to contribute that will create value in this world and make this world better in some way? And in doing it, you might not enjoy it every single day, but the satisfaction that you'll get from actually doing that will be an enduring source of happiness for you. You know, this idea of setting about to create, to create value and to create value for others. Right. You know, we're, we're talking about happiness in ourselves. We're talking about this concept of, of the habits we can develop, the things we can do to get better. You know, as we talk about this, the best path to a good life that we're trying to live, to live. But but you're you're talking about the fact that you do these things so you can serve others. Talk about that a little more. I know. You know, it's so paradoxical. People often think that, you know, why do I do my work? So I have money. Why do I have money? So I can buy stuff. Why do I buy stuff? Because I want stuff. Here's the key <laughs> way to think about it. You know, it's funny that, you know, as you go through life, you start to realize that the getting what you want is the terrible strategy for to, to, to satisfy yourself. And so if I get that car, then I'll actually be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. You know, you'll like it for a couple of weeks, but the new car smell, uh-uh, it's not going to last. It's just not going to stick around. Getting the things that you want, having the things that you want is actually not the right strategy. For a, a greater sense of contentment, you need to not to have what you want. You need to want what you have. And the way to think about that um, as a practical matter is to think about your, your satisfaction is not a function of all of your haves. Your, your satisfaction is a function of what you have divided by what you want, haves divided by wants. Now, why? Because you can get a little more satisfaction by increasing the numerator of that fraction or by decreasing the denominator, by wanting less stuff, by wanting fewer worldly things. In so doing, you can free yourself up to enjoy the things that you actually do have, to enjoy your life and to serve other people in a really meaningful way. Doug, you know what I've taken to do is taken to doing is I, I put together now a reverse bucket list as opposed to a bucket list. You know, the bucket list is, you know, all of your attachments and you look at it on your birthday and your cravings. And I know I'm going to be successful if I get that Mercedes or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And no, you won't. You're just going to want the Ferrari after that, you know, and it's kind of cool and it's sort of okay, but that's not going to bring you satisfaction. I make a reverse bucket list. And, you know, it took me a while to do that. I used to have a bucket list when I was 40, but now I'm 58. Uh, we're 58. And, yeah, uh, and, yeah. and I have a reverse bucket list at this point where I go and I, I list all of my cravings and all those things that I always thought I always wanted. And I make a, a strategy for detaching myself from those things. It's okay if I get it. You know, I detach myself from loving the money. The St. Paul said to his, to his disciple, Timothy, for the, the root of all evil, the love of money is the root of all evil. He didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the right. love of money is the root of all evil. And so I detach myself from loving these particular things. And I'm telling you, I'm free. You know, at one point I gave away half my clothes, but that was kind of easy because I don't have that many clothes. But you know what I did <laughs> last year on my reverse bucket list? I gave away half of my political opinions. And I'm telling you, I'm free. It's crazy. It doesn't mean I don't have political opinions. I have political opinions. I happen to know personally that you and I have the same political opinions. Right. As a matter of fact, I'm just less attached to them and I'm less convinced I'm right. 
than I was before. And that reverse bucket list non-attachment thing has made it possible for me to love more people and to be free and to be happier. And, and I recommend it to everybody, not specifically that, but to just be less attached and, and, and to enjoy your life more. You know, there's, there's sometimes, I, I think it was a comedian who, who made this, this long list of things he believed and he was right about this and that. And at the end of the whole thing, he went, but I could be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think when we leave ourselves open, I think it's powerful to detach our tail ourselves from material things, but from things where we can be absolutely convinced that we're right. And one of the things that I've I've so enjoyed about you know our relationship and talking to you and is that you bring new perspectives that make me challenge things that I thought for sure were right, mm -hmm. but now there's a new source of information. There's a new fact on the table. And it doesn't maybe change what I believe inside, but it may change the way I think about that. Yeah. And what it really changes is maybe the way I think about other people yeah. who may have that thought. And, and you open yourself up to a, a deeper relationship, which goes yeah. back to the to the four things that you talked about that I wrote, right? You know, faith, family, friendship. And then doing the work necessary, maybe to develop those relationships with your faith, with your family, and, and with friends, old and new friends that yeah, may sure. have a different perspective and a new view. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, this is really what I believe our country needs to become truly great, to reverse many of the problems that we have. Um, you know, it's it's the, the thing that really makes me sad is is that that we're so convinced that the enemy is within and people who disagree with us. And the truth of the matter is that the source of strength of the American experiment is people who disagree with us. You know, in, in, you know, the competition is so great. Competition in markets is called capitalism. Competition in politics is called democracy. And the competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society and to excellence in our ideas. You know, I was talking to a large group of Republican congressmen a couple of years ago. I was doing a keynote presentation for all the congressmen, for all the members on the Hill and, and, and their staff and the senators as well. And I said, how many of you wish we lived in a one party state? No hands. And by the way, no hearts either. Nobody wants that. And I said, how many of you are grateful that we have a multi-party or at least a two-party democracy? All the hands went up. And I said, you just told me that you're grateful for the Democrats. Why? Because if you're grateful to live in a, in a country that has more than one party, you're grateful for the other party. It just works that way. It doesn't mean you agree. You shouldn't agree. I mean, you and your wife and I and my wife, we're going to go to our graves disagreeing on certain things, but we're going to go to our graves in love with our wives. And there's no incompatibility between disagreement and love because we actually need disagreement. This is the American experiment. These are enlightenment values. This is, this is the American way. Well, Arthur, you, you, we've had a, a great conversation here and you have uh, walked us through the science, but not just the science, but the heart uh, of what it takes to get on the path to a good life. A mm -hmm. And you've, you've opened up uh, you know, ways of thinking. I trust all of our listeners are just grateful to you for your life's work and for how you've lived these things out, how you've learned about them, but how you shared them through the books that you've written, through the through the the speeches that you've given, and through the time that you've taken here with all of us today. All right, we're just we're just grateful for how you uh, can help us all learn how to get on that path. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for the show. 
Um, thanks for what you're doing to bring these ideas to people, to lift people up and bring them together, which you're doing with your work as well. And uh, I'm really impressed and I can't wait to see you in person. All right, my friend. Well, I, I'm just so thankful for the time that we've had again to chat. Look forward to connecting again soon and uh, and just uh, enjoy the rest of uh, enjoy the things that you're doing. I just love to see, yeah. you know, that that transition we talked about when you said I'm going to go the second the second half of my life and uh, go from strength to strength. And so I'm I'm trying to follow in your footsteps, my friend. Thanks. I think you have and I think you are. So God bless you, Doug, and God bless all of our listeners. And thanks so much. Great, great. Take care of yourself, my friend. And for all of you who've uh, been enjoying this, thanks for joining us on this episode of Believe, and we'll look forward to uh, connecting with you very soon. Thanks, everyone. <music>